When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, we are talking about normalization with Nicholas LeMay-Hebert and Gizim Visoka. Nicholas and Gizim, can I ask you guys to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Of course. My name is Nicholas LeMay-Hebert. I'm an associate professor in international relations at the Australian National University. I work on local resistance to interventions mostly, and also the political economy of interventions, and also how do we map interventions. So that's the latest work, but also obviously I work on normalization issues. And I am Gazim Visoka. I'm an associate professor of peace and conflict studies at Dublin City University in Ireland. My research focus is between state building and peace building, as well as foreign policy and state recognition. So what the heck is normalization? So I guess in order to make sense of normalization, we need first to kind of go back and define what is the normal and normalcy. And All of these concepts have been variously defined across different disciplines. For example, in Western sociology, the normal is associated with the ordinary, average, and acceptable state of affairs, whereas normalcy is associated with the order, stability, and accessibility. And normalization is the process in itself uh, trying to achieve this state of normalcy. What we do in the book and what's important for listeners to know is that at the heart of normalization is intervention. Intervention to construct a particular order of normalcy, as well as intervention to sustain a particular order of normalcy. The normalization operates through a dual mode of intervention. And this is the paradox here. On the one hand, there is the construction of the abnormal through a preconceived uh, notion of what is ought to be normal and simultaneously imposing a new meaning or practice of normalcy through prescribing what should be normal. So normalization has this dual function. On one hand, it describes a state of affairs and also prescribes how it should be. And this has sort of serious ramifications for social and political order because the very effort to try to normalize or sustain normalcy relates or results in homogenizing or heterogenizing society. So this entails, for example, certain identities, forms of living, forms of being, ways of talking, practices become acceptable and thus normal and normalized. And anything that is outside that sort of spectrum of practices that are conceived as normal end up becoming outliers 
thus abnormal and uh, excluded, criticized, or even punished. So by default, the very process of normalization empowers somebody and disempowers someone else. And that's why we think studying normalization is central to making sense of contemporary practices. In particular, we think that at the heart of normalization processes, there is a power struggle. So those who make the norms and enforce particular state of normalcy, let's say, take a policing role on society and thus generate power to discipline others. Whereas the others who are subjugated to that, let's say, project or process of normalization lose agency, autonomy, and are subjugated to the regime of normalization. In short, normalization is about making governance easier. It's about empowering or pushing subjects to self-discipline themselves, self-govern themselves, without really reverting to persecution or punishment. It's the most extreme form of intervention where there is compliance without enforcement. That's why we find Foucault's work on normalization fascinating and and use it in the book. If I could ask you a follow-up, what is intervention in your understanding? For us, especially if you are trying to understand normalization orders and techniques of normalization, uh, you have to broaden the, the concept of intervention then. And this allows you to see then other types of actions and practices. So basically, we're interested in intervention as practice, right? So as a way of doing things in the international order. So for us, intervention will take very different forms. And this is what I think is interesting once you start looking at all the practices of normalcy. And, you know, you you see normalcy and language everywhere these days, right? Everyone's talking about the new normal, old normal going back to a previous order. You know, that's very Trumpian. All these discourses are, in fact, forms of intervention, forms of normalizing interventions, as Gesim said, that we need to unpack, unwrap in order to understand what is behind that. What are the normative, not just consequences, but also kind of wager that is made when we are talking about specific forms of normalcy. And yes, so for us, intervention is definitely broader than just military interventions. It's quite a powerful ways also to impose a specific form of normalcy, but there are other, other ways, more discreet, more nuance, let's say, that actors can use in order to enforce normalcy. Yeah. And so perhaps this leads into my next question, because I'm really curious to know what some of those other modes of intervention are. The next question we have is, how do I or how does one use normalization? So it's a really good question. And this is the key question that we had, because as Gizim alluded to, we started off that project looking at all the mentions, all the references to normalcy around us and thinking, well, no one is trying to make sense of that, right? So we see we see multiple references to this, but it doesn't fit any sort of current framework that we could find, you know? And so we were thinking, well, there should be a way to try to understand this. We came across Michel Foucault's work on abnormals. It's one of all those lectures to the Collège de France, which is very famous for Foucault. He's done one every year. It's used a little bit in disability studies, but less so in, say, political science and other disciplines. And we were intrigued because once you start reading this, you see, I think, how this plays out in front of us at the moment with all these kind of post-COVID discussions, I guess. So for Foucault, basically, there are three figures that are really key to him to understand how normalcy and abnormalization works. And these figures, basically, are linked to different mechanisms of normalization. So his first figure is the figure of the monster. 
the monster is beyond the realm of the natural and of the social, right? So it's, it's the person that is just absolutely outside of the order. So he has a, a beautiful example of a woman uh, who's been asked to uh, take care of a child and kill that child for no reason, apparent no reason. And so the police is asking questions repeatedly to that woman and there's no answer to that. You're in front of something that is inexplicable, right? That you cannot do anything about, which obviously will, will lead to a specific, let's say, professionalization of the political, judicial order or powers. You know, you will have a psychologist and psychiatrist coming in and, and trying to figure out what is that abnormality. You know, once you start thinking about that, you see this everywhere. And when you read newspapers, you will see all these kind of references all the time, right? Of something that is completely outside of the realm of the possible. When, you, you know, you have a terrorist attack or if you have something like that, you will always be faced with this kind of uh, language. For us, the monster here is the failed state. We need people telling us what to do with these states. And so then, yes, that does then uh, legitimize specific forms of intervention into these orders and to try to bring them to normalcy, right? So think also of Saddam Hussein, you know, Iraq 2003, which is exactly the same type of language, right? We need to bring the Iraqi back into, into civilization, basically. When I'm using the language of civilization here, it's also the type of language, the monster, the barbarian that was used also during colonial times, right? So that there's clear continuity of this language between colonial times and let's say post-colonial times too. So that's the first figure for us, right? And that is linked to the first use of the term that we have, that is imposing normalcy. We are imposing, we, are, we want to transform citizens into normal liberal subjects. That's the first one. The second one is the figure for Foucault of the incorrigible, the village idiot. So this is dealt by the family, the kind of closer unit. For Foucault, we can deal with that inside the community, right? And for us, the incorrigible then becomes the language of restoring normalcy, right? So we want to kind of bring back a specific order of normalcy. And then we question what type of order that is. You know, it could be it could be a statuco ante, it could be coming back to something just before the crisis, or it could be something that is completely new in a sense. So, you know, we've seen that after disasters. But this is something that can be linked to, to this kind of second form of normalization that we call all this discourse about restoring normalcy, building back better and all these things. Okay. And then third figure is it's Foucault's onanist, the masturbator, right? For Foucault. Okay. So, so for Foucault is this all these individuals that are breaching mm -hmm. the social norms, but it's accepted by all, right? It's a really powerful figure for Foucault here, right? Of course, this is linked to different forms then of normalcy and abnormalization, right? You don't talk about it, that's the taboo, that's the norm. But we all know that this exists. And, and for us, the, the onanist is this accepted normalcy kind of discourse. So you have that with Biden that is going to Saudi Arabia soon. We have that with specific also understanding of Israel, even if they are breaching specific norms of the international order. We still sometimes, you know, uh, close their eyes on this. There's a number of examples like this. We just accept the person as is. For us, it was very, very, let's say, fruitful to be using Foucault. Obviously, he was not talking about international relations at all in his work. Using his different figures to exemplify the different forms of uh, normalcy and abnormalization that we can see uh, in the international order.
What are the kind of interventions needed to maintain that double looking or that understanding of something that we look away from that is abnormal, but we treat it as if it's normal? So basically, the third sort of strand of normalization, accepted normalcy, it's very much about retaining the international acceptance of that country, but also identifying specific small individual actions that need to be corrected. So going back to Foucault's reference, in the anonymous figure, all it, what's wrong is the practice of sort of, you know, using genitals and part of the body. And if that human or that person corrects that behavior, and that takes place through actually family and pastoral practices, you know, church, priest, and the parents historically in Foucault's sense had that role of policing. It wasn't the community, it wasn't the state, as it was with the other degrees of abnormalcy. And for us, the reference here is very clear. Countries who are suppressive countries in terms of breaching human rights or other norms retain normalcy through two mechanisms. One is the politics of alliances. So, you know, the family and friendships they have with other countries. And second mechanism is confessionary politics. So these countries use a discourse, state reporting, their own justification for their normalcy. Whereas, for example, failed states are silenced or sidelined and their narrative of their normalcy is really disregarded. In the case of this suppressive states, they have access, legitimacy and platforms, let's say within UN or in other instances, to have their own state confession. And in the book, we have a full chapter where we show how, for example, the Universal Periodical Review, which is called its Human Rights Council within UN, where each country every two years have to go there and confess how they respect and protect human rights. And for us, that's the platform these countries utilize to defend their normalcy. But what's specific about this type of practice is that these countries utilize the international institutions to retain the normalcy while in practice, they might share the same attributes as failed states or sort of disaster-prone states. So whereas in failed states, we have full international involvement and governance and control of the affairs from Afghanistan to Iraq, Kosovo, Bosnia, and elsewhere, in the cases of suppressive states, they don't allow international intervention. The most they allow is a delegation of international organization, an envoy, or a specific commission of inquiry where they issue a report, suggest recommendations, and as long as the recommendations are taken on board, then this country is restored and accepted as normal. Thinking about all three of those mechanisms together, how will normalization save the world? <laughs> so this is a really good question. And we haven't really dealt with it directly in the book, but the implications of our argument and findings really provide useful hints into this question. So I guess we can approach this question in two forms. In a positive sense, and normalization is not all negative, by the way, and interventions are not all negative. If we take a positive reading of normalization in world politics, we could perhaps extrapolate and argue that normalization is about retaining this international order. So if there is a failed state, 
it requires more intervention and hence the end result is them being restored or empowered to become equal, sovereign, independent, responsible actor international system. And also in other examples where there is a disaster-prone country, a level of restoring normalcy and intervention is required for them to bounce back and become more resilient. And similarly with suppressive governments, with small forms of pressure or alliance, sort of, you know, politics, these countries might correct their misconduct. So in that sense, normalization can have that sort of, you know, positive effect of being an equilibrium of different competing powers. And at the end, it's about retaining some sort of order, a good enough order that is sufficient for normal, you know, running of world affairs. Ultimately, we come to a conclusion that the end goal of normalization is to create docile states, because also Foucault talks about docile bodies, states that are capable of accepting external pressure, correcting and self-correcting themselves, disciplining and self-disciplining themselves constantly, so that they are within the curb of the normal. That sounds a lot better for states than for bodies. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, I know, uh, or for trees, yeah. you know, Foucault's uh, you know, lectures on that it shows also trees having sets of pillars. So in that sense, you know, one could argue that normalization is sort of a positive way of trying to optimize interventions and trying to kind of, you know, hold the equilibrium. But then there's also a negative effect, and that's what we show in the book. By default, any effort to intervene or normalize societies doesn't really achieve the goal. Most of the societies that have received extensive international intervention, where normalcy has been imposed from outside, it hasn't succeeded. I mean, just take Afghanistan as an example. The language of normalization has been embedded in all of the sort of you know, strategic documents and policies, and they have failed to impose a liberal or Western or external order of normalcy. So the practices of normalization trap the societies in hierarchical relations, unequal relations, and they are actually more abnormalized than are normalized by the very effort to normalize them. And the same is with other modes of normalization, be that to restore or accept normalcy. So selective interventions and then uneven forms of normalization have a negative effect. And that's why now the image of the West is damaged internationally. The liberal international order is creeping and is cracked because of this selectivism of supporting certain countries and regions and imposing certain forms of intervention elsewhere. So inconsistency in applying these interventions has had a negative effect overall in any effort to impose or build normalcy. Normalization, I'm not sure if it will save the world, but certainly it's an important heuristic to tell us how actually the world works. At the moment, the Western state or model of democracy is the model of the normalcy that many countries aspire to achieve or international organizations seek to impose. But in the future, it might change. It might be a different order of normalcy. So overall, it's difficult to really pin down you know, one way of thinking how to save the world or how normalization will save the world. But certainly, it's a heuristic of analysis that can be really useful to make sense of practices of intervention. I was actually going to ask you if you could imagine a new normal, a normal that was not centered around the Western liberal democracy as the normative model. <clears throat> That's a really good question, Kim. And, you know, that brings us maybe a little bit beyond the book. But for me, 
all this kind of normalcy discussion that is now becoming mainstream in the media coverage and also the politicians' discourse leads me to question, what is this kind of new normalcy? If we go beyond international relations, but thinking about the post-COVID world, what is this kind of new normal that, that is imposed on us? You know, And, and I think that the COVID crisis is, is a very important moment for all of us, right, to kind of think about the fact that there's not one single possible normal state of affairs, right? It was a bit of a window into other possible normals, you know? So, so we are kind of force-fed this idea that there's only one possible state of affairs, going back to this kind of capitalist world order where it's only one possible way of doing things around us. When we kind of now realize that, wait a minute, there's maybe other possibilities down there, right? I don't know if it's going to save the world, but definitely it will be part of the future struggles for what type of world order, what type of politics do we want to have in our own countries, but also in the world that we live in. Totally. Well, I look forward to seeing the new world order and the new norms that we might develop. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us about normalization. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kim. Thank you very much, Kim. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts, Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Bye.